0: Over the last several weeks, we have been in this study called That Thing. So we look at how to live faithfully with a, an area that is a constant struggle for us. And what I have attempted to do throughout this study is to, to take some of the, the most significant or most common areas of struggle and try to look at those through a gospel lens how does our faith inform us? How does the, our faith give us a sense of hope if we struggle with with anxiety, depression, or grief or or some other area like that that how can we live as people of faith when when life is not perfect and I want to acknowledge this morning that chances are I did not address your thing. For many of us in this room, there, I didn't talk about that thing that, 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 that you're specifically wrestling with right now in this moment. But I want to take a step back from the specific areas and just talk about who we are as a family of believers. With my children, I have to, to teach them, instruct them how to live as, as family. There are times that they're talking to one of their sisters and I have to say, now, now wait a minute, this is not how we talk to family. And that's what this morning is intended to do. It's going to, to take a different approach and look at maybe that thing isn't, isn't some of the things that we've talked about, but for some of us that thing is we have someone that we love. That, that they are an addict. Or, or somebody that we love, they are, are, are going through grief and we, we don't know how to, to be with them and be family with them. I want to begin this morning with... Showing a, a video that, that comes from uh, Brene Brown, a, a speech that she gave a, a few years ago that has been set to uh, a bit of animation, in which she talks about the, the difference between empathy and sympathy. Last line that rarely does, are we capable of, of fixing the problem? But what makes things better is the connection. See, I don't want to, whenever I'm talking about some of these issues, I don't want to give the impression that that if you'll just put your faith in Jesus that everything is going to be better, that that tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're not going to be addicted anymore, your your marriage is going to be perfect, that, that everything is going to be in order. Because that's not the truth. The reality is, that for many of us, what we, what we experience, perhaps the, the best term isn't healing, but it is recovery. It is a process. It is a, a journey of recovery. Matthew Stanford, in his book, Grace for the Afflicted, has presented a, a model of Recovery, where he identifies the, the top uh, line of this image is the the, the stage that somebody that has, has experiencing some form of mental uh, illness that they may be in, and it begins with distress, and, and that 's where their, their symptoms are just running rampant, they, they, they are destroying themselves, maybe they are experiencing some suicidal thoughts, and the bottom half of this image is is your relationship to that person that whenever they're at this level of distress that your relationship it's not a a family relationship it's not a brother sister relationship it's not if it's a spouse it's it's not a husband wife relationship but but you almost have to take on a caregiver type of of role and as they start to to get on the road of recovery, that then they experience stability. They they've entered into treatment. Some of the symptoms are are beginning to be managed. It's not that that everything is perfect, but but they're they're on medication and it's helping things. Things are getting a little bit better, and then. Your relationship becomes one of, of managing. You're managing their treatment. Then as they continue to improve, they, he uses the term function, that they take ownership of their, of their recovery, and that, that then changes your relationship, that you become a partner with them. And after a period of time, some, they, they reach a point where they, they stop defining themselves by their disorder or by their addiction, by their problem, and they discover a sense of identity apart from that, a purpose for themselves. And he says that's when, when we can move back into this kind of family kind of relationship, now, it would be nice if that is a nice, neat process, but the reality is, is far different from that. The reality is that, that oftentimes this is a cyclical process and, and that people sometimes will relapse. Some, the, the symptoms will return and we then have to, to change the, the way that we relate to them. And this isn't just for addictions or mental health disorders. You can see that, that, that we experience the same progression only in the reverse whenever you're talking about age-related decline. And some of you are, are there now. Some of you ha- have been there with, with your parents or with a, a mate, and, and, and they are experiencing some of this decline, and your relationship is changing as a result of that. And the question this morning is, how do we show Jesus? How do we show compassion and empathy and enter into the pit with someone whenever it's not something that we can fix? Let's begin by just acknowledging and stating that the foundation is that what cannot be acknowledged cannot be healed. That if something is going to to even if a person is going to even begin to get on the, the, the road to recovery, you have to acknowledge that there is a problem. The Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, in a recent interview, spoke about her life uh, struggles with uh, with with being a diabetic and in her her early twenties uh, and, and and into her thirties she she lived with this um, this stigma because she had to inject herself with insulin uh, every day that that people looked at her as if she were taking some form of of drugs that she was an addict. And so she hid. She, she, um, she tried to disguise that and she would sneak off into the bathroom if she needed to give herself an insulin inju- injection. If she was in a setting where, where she thought that people would notice, she would just simply skip it. One evening she was throwing a party at her house when she did not give herself an injection and as a result she started to to go into a a, a glucose induced uh, coma in essence. She became non-responsive and and uh, people were were all around her some friends were there they were trying to talk to her but she was unable to communicate unable to respond. And luckily, there was somebody that walked past her with a plate that had a cake on it, and without even thinking, just instinctually, she reached out and grabbed the cake and shoved it into her mouth. And then she became a little bit more alert. In the interview, she stated that she almost died that night in a room full of people because they did not know. And as I heard that, I could not help but reflect on, on our churches, on, on what our communities of faith have become, and how many people walk in the doors of this building and they are about to die in a room full of people that love them, all because they're afraid to admit that they're broken. All afraid because they're afraid to admit that, that they are struggling with their faith or, or that they have this problem that, that has a stigma attached to it. And my point and my objective in trying to address these issues is to, to bring them to the, the forefront of our discussion so that we can begin to accept that this is a fact of life. That we are broken people. That's what the Bible teaches us. Romans chapter 3 says that, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That no one escapes this. Everybody is a broken piece of pottery. Jesus will say in Mark chapter 2 that, that it is the sick that need a doctor, not the healthy. In speaking about his reason for coming, and he adds that I've come not to call the righteous, not those who have it all together, but I've come to call the sinners. And we need to, to do a better job as a church of creating this culture where people can acknowledge the struggles that they are facing. And a big part of that is making this mental shift or this emotion, emotional cultural shift within our body that that we stop trying to fix people and we instead see ourselves as burden carriers. That's what Paul says in Galatians 6 verse 2, that, that you are to carry each other's burdens. In the language of our mission here at, at this church, our, our mission is to bring people to Christ. Christ. And out of our conviction that, that, that Jesus is the solution, that Jesus is the answer to the world's problems, sometimes we go too far and we start to, to, to live with this sense of arrogance about us, that we have all the answers, that we can fix everybody's problems. But that is not the way that we are to love people. That we, instead enter into the pit with people Mark Lukacs tells of his journey with his wife who has been diagnosed with bipolar when he met her in college everything was was great she was a beautiful italian girl she was from italy and and he instantly fell in love with her, told all of his friends that he was going to marry her before he even spoke to her. It was one of those kinds of relationships. They got married and, and started their careers together. And in her first job, after a period of time, she started to experience anxiety that was just crippling, that, that she would stay up all night worrying about work, and, and then she started to hallucinate. She started to speak and, and have conversations with Satan. He writes about his life with his wife, that she's been institutionalized for treatment a couple of different times in a book called My Wife in the Psych Ward. He shares of how he's learned of of what love is through that relationship. That whenever he first met her, his definition of love was, was one of joy. That, that she made him feel good. She made him feel happy. And so he did everything in his power to spend as much time with her just to, to, to capture some of this joy. And he thought that's what life was. That, that's what love was. It, it's just just capturing as much of this joy as possible. But because of, of her struggles, that that joy... They started to go away. And he started to wrestle with, even as a person of faith, how can I stay married to someone that, that is going through all of this? He described one night that she looked particularly disturbed and he asked her what was wrong. She said that she's trying to think of what to do with the Vespa key. They had a, a Vespa, and they only had one key to that Vespa. Living in San Francisco, at that moment, she was thinking about driving to the Golden Gate Bridge and jumping off. She said, if, if I keep the, the key with me whenever I jump off of the bridge, they're not going to be able to find the key, and you're not going to have the Vespa. You're not going to be able to get it back home. But if I leave the key in the Vespa, then somebody may steal the Vespa. They'll just see it sitting on the side of the road when he heard that, his heart just sank. This is not the life that he envisioned having with his wife. And, and then he moved into this, this next stage of love that he, he describes as the, the, the mother bear love. That the, then love became just protecting at all costs. And so he stayed up all hours of the night with her. Anytime she would start talking about, about having the, these depressive thoughts or thinking about killing herself, he, he would immediately jump in and say, "Say, don't do that, don't think that way. And he would start to remind her of, of all the good things that were in her life. But that seemed to to just frustrate her. That just seemed to, to, to make things where she, she bottled them up and she wouldn't tell him what was going on. And it was out of the depths of that pain, the desperation, that he discovered a new stage of love that he describes with the one word of listening. That he realized he can't fix her. And so whenever she would start to talk about the depression, he just listened. He just asked her to to tell more. And the first time he did that, she said that that that's the first time that that she's told him about that and she's felt better about it. He learned that that it was through this this shift uh, of not trying to fix it, but just trying to carry her burden, just just entering into the pit with her, that, that somehow it helped. Somehow it lightened the load for her. Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 describes some of the pressures that he is feeling from from other people, some of the abuse and the the pain that he's experiencing and the the internal pressures that he's he's putting on himself. These these issues that that he's wrestling with in his mind and in his soul. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 6 he says, The God who comforts the depressed He comforted us by sending Titus to us. That's an interesting way of phrasing it. Because Paul does not say that that, that God made all these thoughts, all these struggles, all these issues go away. But instead what what he says is that God, God comforted us through the relationship of another person. Somebody that was willing to come and get into the pit with us. And just listen. Oftentimes that is the greatest resource that, that the church can provide. It's the greatest resource that, that you can provide as a Christian. It's just simply to acknowledge that, that you're a brother, that, that, that you are, are a sister, that, that you are someone that, that loves in the name of Christ and you don't have the power within yourself to to fix the problem, to make everything better, but you can enter into the pit with them. You can love them. You can show empathy. You may not have experienced the same issue that they are experiencing, but you can identify with the emotional experience. You can identify with some sense of frustration or some sense of, of sadness, some sense of, of hopelessness. See, we have created this myth in our culture that, that in order to, to really help someone emotionally or spiritually that you have to have gone through the same kind of experience. But you know, whenever I go to the doctor, if you have to go to the doctor and have open-heart surgery, the first question that you ask is not, have you yourself had open-heart surgery? It's not that important, and it shouldn't be that important. Whenever it comes to these other areas of struggle, and I think that's why Paul, or not Paul, but, but uh, uh, Hebrews chapter ten encourages us to to uh, begin to to get creative about the ways that we can motivate one another to acts of love and good works, that we don't give up the, or neglect the habit of meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. We have approached the, the, this kind of time in our culture where church attendance is not all that important because of mobility, because we can travel, and because of of a number of different factors, people are attending church less often. And frequently it's not that, 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 that they don't love God. It's often just a result of I'm not in a place where I really need someone else. But Hebrews says, even if you don't think you need someone right now, the bottom line is someone, someone needs you. Someone needs you to, to be there every single week because for them, on that day, it took everything they had just to get out of bed and walk through the doors. And they need a familiar face. They need a consistent face. They need someone to come up to them and and wrap their arms around them and just to give them a hug. Not even to say a word, just to to offer a handshake, just to, to be there with them. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, offers an invitation to those who are weary and tired. It says come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. If you'll allow me to to paraphrase what Jesus says there in Matthew 11 to make it more specific to what we've been talking about this morning and over the last several weeks that Jesus says to those who are lonely, those who, who their bodies are breaking down, those who have lost a spouse, those who are struggling with addiction, he says to them, come. Come to my family and I will give you peace. Church, that is what we are supposed to be. That is the kind of community that, that we are supposed to be in this place. Every week, we offer an invitation. And, and I don't do that because it's, it's my ego that I need the invitation. I need to see somebody respond. It's the invitation of Jesus. Because Jesus says, come. And if you are here this morning struggling, you can go discreetly to, to one of our shepherds. They'll be at the back of the worship center. They can take you to a side room. They can spend some time with you in your pit. Or maybe you're here this morning and you need to come and, and you need to put your faith in Jesus. You need to be baptized into him so that you can receive the freedom. We invite you to do that this morning as we stand together to sing.